Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Alison Dutterman. Alison is the president of the Foresight Institute, where she leads the Intelligent Cooperation Molecular Machines Biotech and Health Extension Groups. She co-edited the book Superintelligence, Coordination and Strategy, and is collaborating on another book on intelligent voluntary cooperation. She holds an MS in Philosophy and Public Policy from the London School of Economics, focusing on AI safety, and a BA in Philosophy, Politics, Economics from York University. And most importantly, she is a fellow Foresight podcaster. Welcome to FuturePod, Alison. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Alison. So first question, Alison, what is the Alison Dortman story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Um, I guess quite a personal one and uh, really dates back to really since I can remember, I think the first thought that I can remember is a really strong desire to not die. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, uh, and and I think it's I can laugh about it, but it feels actually kind of terrifying when you're a child and you don't really know why you have to die and you know that you love your sister and your parents so much and you don't know why you have to depart from them ever. Yep. Uh, but you know that it's happening, right? And and I thought that everyone around me was really crazy for not uh, coming to terms with just how terrible it is that there's so many people around us, so many fantastic experiences to be had, uh, so many lives to be lived, uh, so many wonders to be experienced, and then we eventually have to let it all go. And I do think that yeah, that that was always so terrifying. So it was to some extent, whenever I had a really amazing experience, it was always a little bit of a moment of like, wow, it's so great, but one day it will go away. Mm. And and I remember there was really a time when I thought that maybe uh, later in life, I can do all the things. And then I may just not care very much anymore. But then, you know, when I was young, I really, I, I read a lot of books and I kind of realized that quite the contrary, the more you read and the more you experience things the more you also learn about other things that you could be experiencing so there was a time when I thought I could one day read all the books I had a list and then I just realized the book kept on growing and I really wasn't making much progress and that's when I realized it's very unlikely that the more <laughs> I learn I will be bored soon and so that was you know I guess the really how I yeah. initially I guess like a, a little bit of a forming not really forming moment but really the first memory that I can remember and then it was pretty life-defining for me. Yeah. And I thought about it every day. I was afraid of sleep every day because to me it was like dying. I didn't want to let go of my sister and, and, and so forth. And then through that, I studied philosophy and mostly existentialism to come to terms with it. And, you know, much of the Camus of myth of Sisyphus of, you know, pushing the rock up the mountain. And even if it always falls down, mm. you can still make meaning even in a finite life and, and so forth. And then... I thought that was kind of nice, but it really wasn't cutting it. I was still kind of really upset. And then through that, through philosophy, I then discovered transhumanist philosophy. And I was like, okay, this is more my vibe. Like people are not just taking the problem and trying to come, come to grips with the limitations that are artificially imposed on us, but they're actually trying to push the boundaries up 
upward to meet our expectations. Uh, and then through transhumanism, I discovered philosophy of science. That's you know what I focused on then. And I really realized something can be done about this. But then very shortly after that, I had my second awakening, which is, okay, let's, even if we were able to solve the problem of aging, uh, it's still not sure that civilization as a whole will make it through. You know, as a child, you naively assume that history will just continue and you don't really know very much about existential risk and like just how close we, I think, came to destruction before. And so you just uh, accept or you take it as a default that Earth will continue. I just have to, you know, somehow want to remain a part of it. But then I, the second awakening was like, hey, even if I could, even if we could overcome the problem of aging, um, it is not clear that the world will survive. Right. And that was interesting, I guess, for two reasons because on the one hand it was interesting because it showed me that my premises were wrong right like but on another reason it also showed me that what i actually care about with my life is was maybe a puberty version even of a much grander uh, goal for life itself to flourish and to continue even if it didn't mean i was a part of it anymore and so that's when i really realized that you know technologies are probably the most important thing to be focusing on and we have a short time window and it may even be shrinking, uh, given uh, <laughs> progress. And then I yeah, continued my studies. I focused on AI and AI safety. And then I found Foresight Institute online, and they seemed to be focusing on all the right things. They had a tremendous lust and hunger um, for life and for life to continue in the most flourishing ways and have done so really since 35 years. And I found them online. I really just really cold emailed them. And I thought it could never work. You know, I was in London. I was in academia. I thought, you know, they're in Silicon Valley. I have no reason to for them to invite me over. And then the first thing that they said is just like, yeah, come over. Like, uh, why not? And, and and check it out. And so that's what I did. And then I held on tightly and made it from, you know, more of a volunteering role to uh, to a research assistant to program director. And now I'm, I've been president since uh, well, last, last year sometime. So it's been... Um, it's been quite the trip. I feel very fortunate. <laughs> so yeah, it's an amazing story. I mean, I, I mean, just listening to the story, Alison, it, it's almost like you've kind of gone full circle in one that you're back to almost an existentialist perspective, but from a much grander scope. No, I would disagree with that because I think existentialists are accepting limits and then they're trying to come to terms with it. And I want to push the limits. I don't want civilization. I don't want to accept that civilization at large has to eventually wither and I, we just have to accept it and do our best within, you know, the few, I guess, tens to uh, millions of years that we're being given. I really, I think, want to push the envelope there and say what what would be available if we really try to, if we try to make the most of our, the amazing, beautiful civilization that we have, because I think we really, you know, owe it to our ancestors who gone so long and we've made so many things possible uh, to just continue pushing. So I, yeah, I, I wouldn't call myself a, uh, I'd say a global existentialist about, um, about civilization either. I do think that we have to push uh, further and just and move the boundaries that are currently artificially, I think, opposed on us. You don't think that pushing boundaries itself can actually be consistent to someone who says, I only have a finite time, but I am part of a larger story? I think generally, yes. But the larger story is which limits I want to push. Yep. And so the larger story is civilization written large or life in the universe. And for that, 
to be finite, I think also seems deeply saddening and very deeply saddening to me. And so I think that trying our best to just, you know, make the most within first our constraints. And then once we've done so, try to push the boundaries of those constraints further out. So, uh, you know, we just explore what's possible with the amazing seed of life that we've been given. Mm. Uh, the galaxy itself is on a finite life as well. Uh, and so is the sun. And But then that would be, I suppose, from your point of view, the argument would be, well, then you push for another galaxy and a further sun and a further process. Yeah, I very much, yeah, I, I do want it. I do want it all the way, <laughs> yes. It's also interesting to me that, again, I think this comes with knowledge about how we see risk and how we see our own vulnerability to risk, that what started out as you losing your sister is now extended with, through knowledge and everything else to, a, to, if you like it, concerns of greater existential risk. Yeah, because as a child, I think you don't seem very, or you don't think very far, right? Like your immediate... Mm surrounding is what's most dear to you but then as you grow up you're also you know morally i think um in my in my own value set advanced to a point where you also take others other creatures around you into account uh, and people removed in space and time from you and and i think that's when you start carrying on a, on a grander scale that's kind of stock in trade for the business i suppose of being a futurist we do so that you know there are no boundaries to how futurists think because there really can't be yeah i would i would subscribe to that and you know look yeah, I'm not saying I want to push for life at any cost and we have to reach the end of the universe and then push further. But I do. what I do know is that we don't know yet whether, you know, we don't know yet what's available. So I think we really have to push for a little longer until at least we are sure that we don't want to uh, continue life, right? Like, so whenever, you know, I talk about the fact that I, I think that we have to conquer aging as soon as possible, people are like, oh, well, but would you actually really want to live infinitely uh, and be immortal i'm like look i don't know i can't tell you but i know that i'm not bored yet i know that i would probably not be bored by 80 if only i was in a young body um, and had a young mind to me and 80 seems like an artificially constraining number i at least want to live long enough that i can decide for myself whether i've had it or not i'm not trying to subject everyone and anyone to live a really long life and to live uh, you know to push for the envelope of the universe i'm just saying that in my, under my value under my current value set this is something that i that i deeply value and it may change in the future but i doubt that the currently artificial imposed limits of 80 years or 90 years um you know maybe even 100 uh, if i'm lucky are enough and i think that even the current boundaries around civilization and the existential risk that we're facing that that time frame is enough for us to reach full maturity to know whether or not um, we really want to go all the way. So I, I think we just have to buy ourselves time until we're a little smarter uh, and then make the right decision for ourselves. But I think the current constraints are artificial and should probably be overcome. <laughs> some are physical and some are socially constructed constraints. And I think you're pushing hard against both of them, but certainly pushing hard against the socially constructed constraints. Yes. Also, I would say trying to push the physical ones as long as, as much yeah. as it's tenable. Right. And I think, you know, I'm, not a, a crazy, I don't think that we can do magic, but like I think one of the most inspiring books is really David Deutsch's The uh, Beginning of Infinity, where he just lays out that, you know, with, with the right type of knowledge, it really doesn't seem like there's much that we cannot do. And so I really subscribe to that view and find it deeply uh, optimistic and motivating and inspiring. 
second question, which I think we've kind of talked on a little bit, but I'm interested to hear what you want to go into depth on, this notion of a, I asked the guest to explain to the listeners a, f- a framework or a philosophy or a tool or an approach that is central to how they do their work. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? Yeah, the first question was a nice segue, at least for me personally, into this, because I do think that I had sometimes the wrong uh, counterfactual in my mind. So my fear of death, right, is really only so bad because life on the upside is so good, right? And so I think that changing your attitude there of just, I think, you know, one from looking at the counterfactual of like, why is it is the absence of a particular thing bad um, to how amazing it actually could be if we got it right was to me definitely a major flip. You know, the whole notion of me being really afraid of death and then actually figuring out why, what if we could think this further and if we could, um, you know, have ourselves not die and humanity as a whole not die. And I guess the same really is true for existential risk. Currently, you know, with, uh, you know, with Black Mirror, with most, I think, sci-fi that is pretty pessimistic, right? It, it has definitely this notion of really looking at the risks of things, uh, but not only at the risk, but really looking at the most dystopian, I think, uh, deeply terrifying um, scenarios of technologies. And I think that the risk analysis we have to do, you know, we absolutely have to get around to it because we have a short time time horizon and uh, we have to make it over the cusp. But I think the kind of like really dwelling in a very elaborate, pessimistic, uh, dystopian uh, sci-fi scenarios, I think is somewhat unhelpful because A, we can't build what we can't perceive, right? And B, if we only really talk about the negatives, it has this drive that that is kind of what we end up creating, right? It's deeply limiting to creativity because you're only reacting to things that you don't want rather than, you know, thinking outside of the box and really thinking further of what you do want. I, for myself, think that whenever I'm unconstrained by something, I'm the most creative. And I think that is true for many folks, uh, you know, who've built the most inspiring technologies around. They were motivated deeply by, you know, what would be possible if only, you know, we push the limit of something a little bit further and they were motivated by by deeply proactive vision. And I think, you know, just always focusing on what you do not want is is something that is somewhat limiting. I also think in society that's, I'm not an expert in uh, the social studies related to this, but I think the polarization issue is, I guess, in some part also driven by the fact that we very much focus on, you know, on the things that, that we don't agree on and on the things that, you know, are just, you know, make us uh, immediately flip into tribal dynamics. Um, but if instead we, um, you know, focus perhaps on the little bit of things that we do agree on, even if, you know, we don't have to cooperate on everything globally, but even if you don't agree on most things, there may already always in like tiny circumstances, a tiny little bit of things where you can cooperate on. And for the rest, you should just, you know, take a step back and, and leave the other in peace. But this is getting too much uh, in, in, into the book that I'm writing. But but in any case, I think that, you know, that mind shift of switching from the perhaps more negative and fear-dominating approach to a deeply positive one, I think, is good. And here, um, I think in particular, which I think that I, I think is actually really useful for if you're trying to get something done that has long time horizons, is the following, or at least it's been useful to me, is so I was often asked, well, you know, the, the kind of goals that you have, they're so, so grand. And, you know, what, what if you then are at the end of your life and, you know, you realize you actually actually didn't make it through and, you know, you spent all, all of your life 
trying to make a difference and at the end you know it wouldn't have been for anything wouldn't have been nicer to just enjoy your life in the here here now you know live every moment to the fullest why are you so focused about you yourself not dying about civilization not dying you know wouldn't it be better if you just enjoyed the here and now uh, and lived fully present in the moment because when you're 80 and you realize you couldn't have done something uh, that's when you have regret that you didn't live your life differently and i think that's true i worry about that a lot but then i think i ask myself the other opposite hand of the question which is okay now imagine the flip side the other counterfactual which is what if i didn't spend my life trying what if i just opted out of this and then at the end of my life i realized like a skill i could i, I could have gained you know a thing i could have you know a, a thing i could have contributed to this larger mission of keeping civilization and life flourishing and um, could have made all the difference but it's too late because some existential risk hit and but i knew i could have maybe perhaps made a difference mm. and i think that counterfactual is much much worse yeah and so for me minimizing regret uh, as a policy means i have to live the life thinking that there's a sliver of chance that i'll make it through and i will just continue plowing away at it and if it turns out that it was the other way where that was my you know that was the bet i took and the other bet seems more unattractive to me of like knowing you could have done something but you didn't because i think the empowering thing about this is once you know that then there's no space anymore to uh, focus on how terrible everything is right and to focus on you know on just how how small the chances are because once you've accepted that the chances are small but that even but that the counterfactual would have been worse oh then you're fine you know like you can't complain anymore you know you, you know the deal you decide it one way and then you can just i think go and plow away at it because you know the chances are small but you know that the other way around you wouldn't have chosen so i think that it's really really empowering so i guess as a as a, if you ask me for like a, a larger concept of this it would be just switching your counterfactuals yeah uh, and knowing from yeah from a negative one to one of why you care about that thing in the first place is that a concept that i mean obviously you've grasped it but is it also a concept that can be shown to others to grasp? For a person who tends to be trapped inside their factual, have you been able to get people to actually liberate their thinking by, by actually understanding the counterfactual and making a choice between the two? I mean, I don't know how many minds I necessarily switch, but I think that things that I, yeah, I try to use, I mean, the, the whole reason uh, I... I created a website a while back that is called existentialhope.com. And the whole reason of this website is to try to show people just how amazing futures could be if we got it right. So it's basically collecting the best science, sci-fi, um, the best, you know, the best science out there that is trying to show people an exciting vision of where we could be going if we didn't uh, destroy ourselves before. Uh, and so the whole reason of that is that I think different things trigger different people in different ways for some it's sci-fi for some it's beautiful poetry for some it's really just knowing where scientific progress could be going and so i'm trying to just crowdsource a list a few amazing volunteers but then really with everyone you know being able to contribute to their website just what got them really hooked about the future what got them deeply optimistic and inspired about about opting in opting in into positive futures mm. and so far a few of the submissions that i received are just i mean they just boost they boost my optimism every time i read them and you know it's different for different people but i think that was my whole motivation i guess to just go out and, and look what actually makes people have that mental flip from one counterfactual to the other and then i really think that's for the first counterfactual right from switching to the 
negative fear-based, death-based, existential angst-based approach to an existential hope-based approach. I guess I tried to create existentialhope.com. And it's basically an onboarding document for the next generation. Because actually, I think the problem is that back in the days, you know, we used to have deeply optimistic visions about the future. Mm. What inspired me so much about Foresight when I found them online, you know, when I first found them, is that their visions were so positive, mm. right? Um, it was founded in, I think, 1986. And back then, people really believed in the future. And I thought, like, you know, I was studying philosophy and and it was mostly very risk and, and, and just, I think, often fear-based. And then here the, were those people that looked at it from an entirely different angle. And so I was like, this is amazing. And whenever I go into our archives, we had one of the uh, you know early websites online. So there's lots online in hilarious formats. I strongly encourage you to dive into it. It has, it has, uh, it, it has I think, really high, um, high inspirational value to some extent. It's quite quirky, but it has high inspirational value because people really cared um, and people had high hopes for the future and i think that we owe it to those people who laid the first scientific and technological groundwork back then when much less actually was possible physically that we don't give up ourselves right yeah. they could see those grandiose really ambitious futures and they had much less technological progress than we have and we have it and meanwhile we're still much more guided by i think fear and contraption than they were so yeah a historic lens i think is is exciting. And I do think that the next generation, you know, goes out and creates the new sci-fi, you know, for the next generation that uh, can inspire them to really aim high, because I think we're lagging in that, you know, most sci-fi is deeply negative right now. Let's go to question three about the futures that you're particularly paying attention to. So, you know, you've already talked about how you use the counterfactual to to look for things to make to make choices of how you can make a difference. But what are the particular things that are emerging around you that you are paying really careful attention to? And these can be things you're excited by or things you are also concerned by. So Yeah, I mean first I think, you know, I have to preface what I'm saying with the fact that I am speaking here I, I don't want to come across as you know, naive, like, you know, I'm deeply aware of the risks and much of the work that uh, I used to do and still am doing is risk focused. And so I don't even think that, you know, you can separate the technologies that I'm excited about from those that I am worried about. Um, you know, they, <laughs> they come with their flip sides. So, yep. but, but again, you know, I do think that one way at least to create the better worlds is to focus on them and to selectively push for those applications of technologies that will be leading them in positive directions so you know just because i'm pretty cheerful and optimistic you know it's definitely not that i'm not aware of the risk in fact it's like deeply deeply troubling uh, to me every day just how incredibly close we are and what's on the line um is i think really something that if you zoom out it is just asinine how we don't how this is not on everyone's minds every day. I guess it can't be, you know, there's good psychological biases in place where mm. not everyone worries about this all the time and maybe it would even, wouldn't be doing much. But yeah, I, I, I'm very, very, very concerned for the world. At the same time, there's so much possible. And I do think that, you know, we are at a really special time right now to, you know, to either self-destruct or to have an almost infinite room of possibility. And it's kind of very 
terrifying and at the same time incredibly inspiring to be at this particular moment in place and time. And I do really think that it's a special moment. But yeah, so I just want to preface this. <laughs> preface heard. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess to maybe go into a few specific technologies. And, you know, I have to say, I guess for my intro, it became clear, I'm not an expert in any of the fields. Um, I My work is not technical. It is, I am mostly, I think, maybe not a herder of cats, trying to more be a container for the different scientific and technological cats so they can they can go and play. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, I'm more observing this from the outside and trying to coordinate and pull the strings in a more cross-silo way across different scientific and technological silos. Again, another preface, what I'm saying, you know, I'm not a technical expert in any of the fields, but from, you know, monitoring the space, I think a few technologic fields that are deeply inspiring and terrifying are uh, the fields that we focus on at Foresight a lot. And, you know, this is obviously my local bias peeking in here as well, but it's biotech, nanotech and computer science. And maybe to say a few more words about those biotech, you know, as I said, I'm very in favor of conquering aging and of health extension. And it is very bonkers how much progress has been happening in the past few years and especially in the past year. So I lead a biotech and health extension group at Foresight and it's a bunch of uh, scientists. It's a private group that get together to try to advance health extension and that's scientists, entrepreneurs, institutional allies, and so forth. And um, we've kind of kept it pretty small uh, purposefully. And in the past few weeks to months, the amounts of applications that I'm getting for those groups have exploded. I'm interviewing probably four or five people every day that want to join these groups. And that's amazing applications. Like, you know, mind you, those are great people that all have some kind of biotech startup that, you know, that has obviously existed for longer than, you know, like the past few weeks. Uh, but it really seems to all be coming together. And, you know, again, you're um, partly enabled by COVID. So, you know, while I am very aware of uh, the deep, uh, I think, you know, psychological and, and obviously also physical, you know, negativities that are attached to uh, COVID and how deeply it hurt a lot of people, also on an economic angle, if you know one positive thing came out of this, then it's the incredible explosion that we see in biotech, mm. not just in a way that in terms of the technology that's happening, but also in terms that the regulations are getting more sensible, right? The speed with which we were able to push the vaccines through, at least in America, is really mind-boggling and should deep, be deeply inspiring, I think, to, to everyone. And so, you know, I know that we're now facing, you know, the next round of problems, but, um, but you know, we have to, we, again, we have to plow away at it. So anyway, I'm super excited about uh, biotechnology right now. I do think that there's still a few areas that I think that, so the explosion of diagnostics even and of people using health tracking devices and being able to measure their different biomarkers for aging and so forth is very, very inspiring. I think the next frontier will be cryonics. I'm trying uh, for Foresight to take take that on a little bit more because it's still too fringe, I think, for other organizations maybe to do. But I think cryonics is a really, 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 fringe and maybe terrifying sounding but very necessary backup option if it's not for you guys out there who are young because you think that you will hit escape velocity and longevity soon enough to not worry have to worry about chronics then at least for your parents like sign up to chronics sign your parents up to chronics <laughs> i have no um, personal relationship with any of the chronics agencies but but i think that it's uh, it's something that it's a lifeboat that we shouldn't just dodge out of the hand just because it it doesn't look like 
an, an entirely perfect option yet. We have to we have to take this bet if we can have it. Yeah, if a person's dead, there's no coming back from dead unless you've done something to actually extend the possibility of bringing them back. Yeah, and you know, I think Cronus would say that when you're in suspension, you're not dead, you're vitrified. Yes. You know, we have moved the goalposts of what it means to actually count as dead always with the advance of scientific progress, right? There was a time when people couldn't really reanimate as well as they can now, and that's when you were dead much sooner than uh, than, than, than than you're now. And now you're dead at a particular time, and it, there's no reason to believe that uh, we can't push that push that reanimation timeline out further so that you don't count as dead when, uh, when you're suspended for a little longer. So anyway, that's one area, biotech, tremendously expiring, especially for health extension. Um, and then I have, I guess, two more that we focus on at Foresight. And second one is nanotechnology. So that's an obvious one. Foresight's founding vision was on a vision of, I mean, it was always very cross-disciplinary, but I uh, definitely had nanotechnology as a very strong component of it. And so whenever people are like, okay, what does nanotechnology actually mean? I'm like, okay, imagine you can do with atoms what you can currently do with bits. Mm. Just to grok the concept is very similar to that. So basically, you know, what if you could really move things and move things, like create things with atomic precision by moving atom by atom and constructing things up, maybe from the bottom up, really on an atomically precise level. So what that means is really that it is like alchemy, but in a scientific sense. So you could really build almost anything and you could do so very precisely that means very wasteless cheap and so this is has immense tremendous implications for medicine it has tremendous implication for energy and for space exploration you know we're really bound by physics there and i think if you can you know if you can rearrange uh, our physical limitations then there's very little that we cannot do and so i think that's a tremendously inspiring field uh, it is a little further along than biotech but we are making incredible progress. And again, here I am coordinating a group uh, that is chaired by uh, one of our fellows uh, and James Cooper. And uh, so that's looking at molecular machines. So how can we build uh, better molecular machines for you know ultimately uh, really working toward Feynman's vision of, uh, of of nanotechnology? And you know, it even I mean, if you want to go all the way sci-fi, you don't have to stop at just you know moving bits on an atomically precise scale and creating things bottom up that are a much better, faster, cheaper, cleaner uh, materials, but you could make entirely new materials. Mm -hmm. If you combine, for example, non-technology and computer science, right, you could potentially have real swarms, like intelligent swarms of physical tiny objects that uh, can do miraculous things and, you know, that can self-configurate, you know, into really useful matter almost uh, autonomously and could be doing tremendous things. And obviously, I think for space exploration, that would be a game changer. Then the, the third realm is, which I just touched on already, and it's probably the most obvious one, computer science. It is, I mean, I don't have to explain to anyone, I think, why this field is inspiring, also terrifying to some extent. But, you know, I think that maybe to take a new angle on this field, something that may not be on people's radar the moment that they hear computer science and AI is perhaps the intersection between decentralized computing uh, technologies uh, that we know from cryptography, recently more from the crypto commerce and blockchain space, and the more standard approaches to AI that are perhaps a little bit more uh, top down. So I think that, you know, the traditional models are really, really good at just making really the most, I think the most, like brute forcing their way, (laughs) making really, really smart predictions 
uh, a lot of data at hand and even even with little data at hand. But I think where the more decentralized approaches are interesting, which we may know, you know, more in the crypto commerce ecosystem, is that you can incentivize local knowledge really well, um, and so you could you know, really try to see if there's, you know, certain bits, certain tail ends of problems that haven't been solved so much by the standard models. And you could see whether there's more decentralized way in going about solving those. And I think one particular thing that I'm very interested in, which is uh, related to that and also probably uh, would open up its own bucket, is uh, privacy uh, in computing. And, And so I think that currently, we are somewhat constrained by the fact that, you know, we're data constrained. Uh, but if we had uh, a way in which we could incentivize people to contribute their local knowledge to problems, the problem solving of civilization, which to me is itself a super intelligence that incentivizes the contribution of local knowledge to uh, spit out better problem solving solutions. Um, and so now think about the fact that if you could actually find a way in which you could really in a privacy-preserving way, uh, incentivize all the local knowledge and bits that is currently out there and could really incentivize people to cooperate, then I think it would be incredibly advancing for humanity and everything from, you know, potentially health sciences uh, all the way to, you know, um, privacy-preserving machine learning on, um, you know, satellite data and so forth. There's a lot of ways in which different people could come together and cooperate that currently cannot. And here, though, I really want to put in the big, big caveat of, I think this is probably one of the, one of the fields where the incredible risks are also very, very present to me. So privacy at the moment really is, I think, people, I think, really deeply underestimate the incredible value and hidden value that they currently benefit from uh, by having still a little bit of privacy retained. And I'm really worried that we're just going to give it all away. And so I think that it's the kind of benefit that only turns out to have been a benefit in hindsight when it's too late to get it back. Like currently we're putting everything that we have either on social media, but also on public blockchains. Now, like machine learning will get better over the years. And so once you have publicly transacted on a public blockchain, that data is there. And so if machine learning gets better, traffic analysis will get better on that data. So it is just a question of time until someone can correlate your transactions in a way where you may even be physically extortable um, by people who are able to figure out who you are and where you live. And so I think this is deeply, deeply concerning because we currently we have such a wrong perception, I think, of privacy in the way that we think that it is deeply enabling of criminal activity. I mean, it is, but on the other hand, much of the criminal activity we can also do without those privacy-preserving technologies. And on the other hand, if you look at the fact that you know, I think China's digital currency that is currently being rolled out, you know, that is very surveillance friendly and maybe in a dystopian world, it may get pushed more on the currently economically very vulnerable actors that China will be cooperating more and more with on the long term. All of those people will have to transact using that digital currency. Then, you know, you can very easily cut them off. You can very easily coerce them into really into almost anything you want. Right. And so to me that you know, that kind of negligence on why privacy is important and not seeing the hidden benefit that we get from that until it's too late. And no one's there to say, some people, I guess, will be there to say, I told you so, but <laughs> but maybe not because at that point they'll be surveilled and won't be able to speak out anymore. That's right. If you look at what's possible technologically around this notion of the public and the private, 
that it's almost like the technology is running far ahead of our own moral behavior. In other words, we actually could we could use technology to operate with higher levels of ethics and transparency at a time, but it, but it does require people to, to actually behave in a certain way to allow that to happen. It's a it's a kind of chicken and egg argument. The technology can be built in certain ways, but it comes back to individual actors, motives and intention. I think that's true. And I also have to say that, you know, we shouldn't build our world in a way where we rely on people to do the right thing and to have the right ethical compass, right? I think we want to build our way in a security mindset. Um, you know, we want to build our world such that it could survive and be resilient, even in the face of very antagonistic agents. Yeah, good point. So hence the notion of decentralized rather than centralized. Yeah, I think, you know, centralized may, you know, be currently the uh, the one that is just, you know, producing very exciting breakthroughs. But I think if we want to be resilient, then, you know, some friction in place and some decentralization is probably the way to go. And if civilization's on the line, then uh, I think it's a, it's a good trade-off to, to make. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at nature as a teacher and, you know, again, nature operates on very decentralized systems and very decentralized processes. Very true, yeah. It's also good, uh, you know, at scaling and at, at actually composing those individual bits into really beautiful structures, ultimately life and ultimately things like us who can talk about it. Fourth question, the communication question. How do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Rather than getting into the different technical nitty-gritty bits, you know, technologies I think that are extremely exciting, mostly because of the exciting bits that they unlock. So I think maybe the best way to get people to understand why those three technologies like biotech, nanotech, and computer science are so tremendously important and fundamental to, to our way of life and should be really at the forefront of, of people's minds if they care about life is maybe a really good shortcut to explaining why those technologies are important. If I can steal two quotes, <laughs> yeah, will you let me quote someone here? Go ahead. Okay. Well, one of them is, okay. So basically the way that I would phrase it is, okay, we're trying for technologies of fundamental importance for the human future to go into one direction more than the other. And here's the first direction in which they could be going, which is the one that to me classifies existential risk. In some remote corner of the universe, pulled out and glittering in innumerable solar systems, there once was a star on which clever animals invented knowledge. That was the highest and most mendacious minute of world history. Yet only a minute. After nature had drawn a few breaths, the star grew old and the clever animals had to die. One might invent such a fable and still not have illustrated sufficiently how wretched, how shadowy and flighty, how aimless and arbitrary the human intellect appears in nature. There have been eternities when it did not exist, and when it's done for again, nothing will have happened. That is, of course, Friedrich Nietzsche, <laughs> in on truth and life in an extra moral <laughs> sense. So that's, to me, the existential risk perspective, right? This is one way where technologies could be leading us, right? And sometimes it seems like that's the track that we're on. But here, I want to give you an alternative uh, perspective. This is another way where those same technologies could be headed. And I think it's a, a really, really good reminder and probably the right mental model to think about things. 
And that's the one that I think exemplifies existential hope. And the a quick uh, quote is, whether anyone else is out there or not, we are on our way. Expansion will proceed if we survive because we're part of a living systems and life tends to spread. Where goals change and complexity rules, limits need not bind us. New technologies will nurture new arts and new arts will bring new standards. The possible seems room enough. And this is from Drexler. And I think this is a tremendously inspiring vision about the very long-term future and what's possible. Mm. And, you know, I think that, yeah, I think that we're currently really at the cusp of this. And one other, I think, quote, I think to think about that is that we're currently in dream time, which is a concept from Robin Hansen. And uh, he basically says, dream time is a time of legend when low delusion heroes and the strange clowns around them could most plausibly have changed the course of history. And I think that, you know, sometimes every once in a while you think just like, why isn't everyone, why isn't this on everyone's minds, right? Mm. But it's really, I mean, a really, really special time to be alive. And I think for everyone out there who's just getting started, who's just getting their feet wet in uh, thinking about their future career paths. And if you think you're kind of in this dream time state where, you know, you don't really know whether you could make it, you know, a difference or not, then just, I think, hold both, you know, hold both pathways, the existential angst and the existential hope pathways continue to hold them in you know almost a schizophrenic way really in your head don't get too naive about what the future could be on one way but really just i think believe in the fact that humans are the most inspiring when they truly are excited about something mm. right and so i think that the most amazing way to counter all of the i think fear and hate that we have is by true wonder by childish wonder and excitement and i think about your own life about the incredible bliss and the incredible luck that you have by having people around you that you could maybe, you know, leverage to make a difference with. And then also by the sheer kind of gift to live in a time where both of these worlds are possible. You know, we haven't tilted to the negative yet, right? The, po the, the positive one seems equally within our reach. So it's really on us to make the difference. And I think this is one of the most inspiring and just proactive and just really ex deeply exciting ways to think about the future. And yeah, I'm very, very, just very grateful. And I think that, yeah, I think that we're in a really special time and people can, can really go out and get it. Thanks, Alison. That's great. Thanks. Well, so we're at the last question. You've talked a bit about the Foresight Institute, but maybe you just want to talk some more about it to the listeners and explain how people can get involved and join and support and do all that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. So um, the Foresight Institute has been around for, I think, since 1986 and had a deeply long time horizon on the long-term future and was, to me, at least deeply optimistic and has a really interesting way in pushing for technological progress in mostly focused on the three areas that I mentioned, biotech, nanotech, and computer science. But what I think is exciting about it is that it's doing so cross-generationally. So because we've been around for so long, there is a tremendous wealth. Many of the people that have been with Foresight, they have been building the first prototypes of the technologies that we now operate in. Mm. And so there's a tremendous cross-generational collaboration happening. And we're on, I'm onboarding, you know, newbies all the time, you know, um, and they're getting younger and younger. And so like having that really great historical perspective from, you know, really the 1986 to all the way to now is really great. I think just time horizon to operate in and we have it all in the community. And then the, the second one is that, you know, we're deeply cross-disciplinary. So 
Foresight has always been of the strong opinion that technologies aren't constructed in one silo, but they probably the intersection between them is what will cause the next paradigm shift. And so we don't only do a biotech group, a nanotech group, and a computer science group in which those people cooperate, but they also meet once a month and once a year at our annual member gathering, which is coming up in December 4 and 5 in San Francisco and in Chateau du Fay uh, in France. And they meet, um, you know, across silo and really try to try to make sense of what's happening in the other silos. And it's not only cross silo, but, you know, on those meetings, we also discuss lots in space, neurotech, clean energy and all other areas that people are excited about. So that's the second point where Foresight is exciting, which is just cross collaborator from cross silo. And the third way where I think it's exciting is that it's cross jurisdictional. So during COVID, uh, the three groups that I mentioned, uh, which you know uh, usually meet in in person and technical competitions and all kinds of salon settings, that we have moved everything online. And by moving everything online, because of COVID, obviously it was a blessing in disguise because we picked up people from all over the world. Yeah, I have applicants from every single continent at the moment for these groups. And so if you, it doesn't matter where you are, if you are working in either of these fields, or if you're generally just excited about long-term positive futures, then just, you know, check out Foresight, apply to one of our groups. It's on our website, on each of the individual group templates. There's even an existential hope group where we're trying to just, um, you know, code the technologies that we're working on in a positive way so that we can create a positive grounding narrative around them. So there's a biotech group, non-tech group, computer science group, and an existential hope group. So if any of those fields are exciting to you, then, you know, check us out and see if you want to apply to join one of these groups. You can also support us, obviously, um, but, you know, there's always an application form and there's no cost uh, on those. Yeah, I would say, you know, just see if, if, if you like what you see. And we are now truly moving cross-jurisdictional in the way that, as I alluded to, we have our upcoming member gathering on December 4 and 5 in cyberspace in San Francisco and uh, in in France. So if you're in Europe, San Francisco, or if you're on the internet, um, then, you know, this could be maybe a community that uh, you could find joy in, in contributing to and learning and growing with. Uh, finally, if uh, you're not so quite sure if you want to tip all the way in, we have a YouTube channel, Foresight Institute, that has been going quite crazy lately in terms of uh, subscriber rates. And, and we have a podcast too, in which we take the best of our YouTube videos and uh, that are easy to listen and um, put them in the podcast format. And that is also called Foresight Institute. You do. I found it a thoroughly inspiring and uplifting conversation. So uh, on behalf of the FuturePod community, thanks, Alison, for taking some time out for a chat. Thank you so, so much for having me. I also am very, very positive now, positively inclined for the rest of uh, my day. This is definitely nicer than a little near-death experience. It's the opposite of that, again, in terms of thinking about shifting your uh, your mindset. And yeah, we should do this uh, more often. I'm very excited for the rest of today now. So thanks a lot for, uh, for lifting me up. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.